0: Listener Production.
1: Welcome back to Come Out Wherever You Are. This is a space for us to learn more about the LGBTQIA plus community. I'm here as the lovely host because I'm a G and I wanted to know more about the L and the B and the QTIA in this beautiful alphabet. And I also wanted you to learn more too, whether you're queer or not. So I thought for season two... Why don't we kick it up a notch, okay? You've heard season one already. You know a lot about our community. You're starting dinner table conversations with your family. You're connecting with workmates when they say the wrong thing. You're having a deeper understanding of the importance of pronouns and visibility of the queer community. And because you did so well in season one, I think you are ready for some more challenging ideas. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just trust me a little bit. I'm going to be right here holding your hand the entire time, guiding you through it. I am going to be asking uncomfortable conversations. I'm going to try to poke holes. I'm going to represent diverse voices and ask the questions you might be thinking but are too afraid to ask. So please, come into this season with an open mind and a curious heart. And let yourself be challenged by the conversations just like I to let myself be challenged too. So without further ado, welcome to Come Out Wherever You Are. And because this is a podcast about the coming out experience, it is only fair that I go first. My name is Sean Zepps. My pronouns are he, him, and I am fabulously gay. I first came out in early 2000 when I was 12 years old. I was literally in a closet and I last came out, no joke, 38 minutes ago. <laughs> I was in an Uber and a driver. This is actually a consistent theme on the show. The driver asked me about my wife when I said that I had children and then you're forced to decide is today the day I'm going to came out? Today I came out and the conversation continued swimmingly. Today, we are welcoming a brand new member to the Come Out Wherever You Are family, Shane. Shane, can you introduce yourself? When did you first come out and when did you last come out?
0: My name is Shane Jenick. Sometimes I'm known as Courtney Act. My pronouns, well, you can pick a pronoun. He, she, they. Um, the first time I came out was... I guess it was uh, on the second level of Stonewall in the year 2000. It was my first ever kiss with a boy. I was both coming out to myself and to my friend Stephanie who had taken me there. And the last time I came out, a thought that just popped into my head randomly was I didn't really have to come out. My clothes came out for me. (laughs) I, I was wearing these pink shorts and a denim Jacket with a rainbow on the back, and we were in like the inner west, Annandale or somewhere like that. I was filming stuff for Dancing with the Stars, and this Scottish man walked up to me, and he said, "I I thought he like recognized me mm. from the television, but he just <laughs> recognized me visually as a queer person." And he was like, "I just I just wanted to say like like yeah, I'm fi- I'm fine with you guys. Um, my." My daughter came out to me. I think what had happened was his daughter came out to him. He did a horrible job. Mm. And now he was like trying to make up for it by coming up to me and telling me that it was okay that I was gay. Wow. He walked away and we both were like, what just happened? It was like a, a hit and run, uh, you're brave for being
1: gay. Shane Jennick is Courtney Act. And Courtney Act is Shane Jennick. And they are Australia's most well-known drag queen and LGBTQI+ advocate. Shane has been performing as Courtney Act since early 2000. She came to national attention in the first season of Australian Idol way back in 2003, and since then her career has well and truly exploded. She was the runner-up on RuPaul's Drag Race in 2013. She won Celebrity Big Brother UK in 2018. She hosted The By Life, the UK's first bisexual reality dating show. She has her own show, The Courtney Act Show, and she just came runner-up on the Australian version of Dancing with the Stars. And if that's not enough, her debut memoir, Caught in the Act, is out now where all good books are sold. This is what you need to know about Shane before we get started. Shane uses he, him pronouns when referring to himself, as Shane and she, her pronouns when referring to herself as Courtney. And they're very comfortable with they, them pronouns. And I just wanna flag in this conversation, like many of the conversations before this, we do use derogatory and homophobic terms specifically through the lens of education. Shane and I would both never use those terms in our lives, but it's still equally important that we let you know it happens in this show. Now, here's Shane. Well, I need to backtrack as far as humanly possible. Where did you grow up and what time in human history? I grew up in
0: Brisbane in the 80s and 90s. It was like a pleasant suburban upbringing, somewhat barren of queer understanding or representation. And I enjoyed singing and dancing and performing. And my mom took me along to like a singing and dancing school. And so I I love doing that. I love being on stage. Um, and yeah, that was kind of like the fundamentals. My, my mom and dad, very supportive. My dad has a giant mustache. I
1: don't know why that's important to mess Very, very important. Is it fair to say that Brisbane back then slash potentially now, if I'm being honest, might not be the most liberal leaning, supportive queer place in Australia?
0: No, well, to give you context, I always describe Queensland as the Florida of Australia. Perfect.
1: Which crystal, isn't a compliment. No, but, but also <laughs> crystal clear. Crystal clear. A hundred percent.
0: Although, you know what, at the time I didn't I didn't know any better mm. because it was just the world that I lived in. And I think in a way that can be one of the most challenging things because you don't know that you live in a conservative place with um, strong impositions on what a man is supposed to be and what masculinity means. And therefore you just end up thinking that you've never lived up to this idea of what you were supposed to be and feel shame because of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I also mm. think the reason why that context is crystal clear and very important to me is as a young person who you surround yourself with, the, uh, the the thought of if you can only be yourself if you see yourself is so critical. It's the building block, the foundations to you being able to be authentic. And so you might be 100% authentic and have supportive parents. Why they're supportive, we can unpack that. But if you don't see a bunch of examples of people being really happy as older versions of you, then why would yeah. you ever explore that path?
0: It's funny because... Um, doing uh, press and interviews for my upcoming memoir, Caught in the Act, um, <laughs> are, some of the journalists, but even the queer ones but definitely the straight, run, straight ones have been like, but your parents were so supportive but still you struggled so much with your identity. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> imagine if I didn't have supportive parents. Imagine how hard that would be. Like you read my book and you you understand how much I struggle despite that and so it's it's fascinating and i think that's yeah if you um, i'll use that now if you can't see yourself you can't be yourself is such a important um way to distill the idea of like representation being so important to people understanding who they are
1: i also think it's really hard for people to wrap their head around and i don't know if you agree but my parents were really supportive but they also represented the other they were the thing i was not So no matter how wonderful they were, I still was living in their home, in a neighborhood with a bunch of other homes with straight couples. And so when I came to terms with the reality that that wasn't what I wanted, it didn't matter that my parents told me every day, we love everyone, we support everyone, we love you no matter what. That doesn't change the fact that the world seems to function a specific way filled with a specific Mm types of people, and I am not that thing. That's an internal struggle with sexual identity. It has nothing to do with having a support system.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that mum and dad, even after they read the book, they were like, oh, why didn't you tell us? And I was like, I didn't know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was just as lacking in language and understanding as you were. Like it wasn't like I was actively hiding who I was from you specifically. It was that the world was hiding who I was from me. Yes. Uh, and... It was. It was always just such a struggle, growing up. And I, yeah, I think what you say is so important to acknowledge that just because you have support, it doesn't mean that you're able to. Um, yeah, understand who you are in a in a world that wouldn't you you can't see yourself. In.
1: Mm. And we grew up in a really similar time in human history. And I've heard you say this before, and it really resonated with me. The first time I heard the word. Gay, fag, all of all of the above. Use torch. You wouldn't have got to hear "pufta." No, that's a that's a regional one here in Australia. I didn't know what the word was, but it was thrown at me, and you've you've had a similar hmm. experience. So people say it at you, and you're like, "Oh, whatever that is. I don't want to be that thing." I'm guessing. Hmm. I think in school, I was always like, "Well, that sounds horrible. I, I'm
0: not that." Like I, I and maybe from that support that my parents gave me, I had enough of an understanding that who I was wasn't that horrible thing I was being accused of. But also, I didn't know what I was. Weirdly, now I look back, I'm like, oh honey, you had no idea. Faggot and pervert was the least of it. I am like Courtney Act, the hand walking queer. Like I'm everything that everything you thought you could accuse me of, I have done exponentially Mm. (laughs) and like that's the funny part is that and I love that about who I am and so to think that at age 14 um that my biggest shame could have been that I was attracted to someone of the same sex it seems unfathomable now that that could ever be shame inducing or an insult but like obviously it was yeah and also to be fair what I was what they weren't accusing me their observations weren't of my sexuality they were of my gender presentation really mm. they were accusing me of being accusing me of being a faggot not because I was attracted to boys or because I was having sex with boys it was because I was feminine in my presentation i didn't align with what their what they had all been told boys were supposed to be and what they spent so much time enforcing in
1: themselves and in each other mm. Did that um, language, their vernacular they were using, the bullying tactics, uh, stop you in any way from exploring or coming out? Um, I don't think it was that.
0: Um, I think it was the lack of representation because it wasn't till I got to Sydney. I mean, there was glimpses. Um, uh, I remember watching Madonna's... I don't know if it was Girly Show or Blonde Ambition, but... Um, She does the song Deeper and Deeper, and it's sort of like a 70s theme. And I just remember there was two male dancers on either side of Madonna like gyrating up against her, and then they reached across and started touching each other. And in that same number, like Madonna, um, you know, sexually touches women and also, uh, importantly, the men and the women weren't all just white. There was black men and Asian women, and people of all different genders and ethnicities touching each other and being sexual. And I, I that was like my sexual awakening, where I was just like, oh, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> I just it, it I it had just never occurred to me that a man could touch a man like that. Like I literally didn't know that, and I paused it and I rewound it and watched it again and I rewound it and I watched it again and I rewound it and I watched it again until I bent the Mylar tape and it was always a bit warped in that spot. Yes. But yeah, that was that was like there was like those little glimpses uh, which were like flags that were planted throughout my childhood. But it wasn't until I got to Sydney my first night in Sydney, my friend Stephanie took me to Stonewall and was like, come on. And I was like, oh, that's not one of those gay bars, is it? And she was like, yeah, you'll love it, trust <laughs> me. And I did and I was like, oh, this is what gay is. Okay, now I have context, albeit an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I had more context than I needed to understand that the the four walls of Stonewall and the people who were inside them meant more to me in a weird way than
1: anything that had come before it. In that moment, was it clear that you liked men? Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, in that moment, when you recognize that you're gay, do you turn to the person who's taking you to Stonewall and tell them? Or do you keep that inside?
0: I kept that inside. We went up to the third level we were all dancing. And just the observations that I made there, right? Like I was in a group of, Guys dancing with one woman. Normally, I was with a group of girls, and I was the one guy. Mm. And we were at like City Rowers, which was like the home of the Queensland Reds football and a rugby something something club, like a sports. Yeah. I guess a sports bar in Brisbane, and everyone's drinking Bundaberg Rum and Coke, and I'm sipping my vodka orange. Like, that's that's that answers the question of nature or nurture. By the way. One hundred percent. And then I get to Sydney and I'm out in a club for the first time. I'm in a group of guys with one girl where, like, everyone's dancing. Everyone's, like, just the energy is fun. It feels like it. it this is me. I'm in a place where I belong, just the, the energy. Um, and then a guy came and started, like, gyrating up against me. And it was the first time that I'd ever had, like, physical human contact, with sexual human contact with the male of the species. And... Then I quickly realised that I was amongst people who knew me and I was like, meet me downstairs. And I went down to the second level, made out with this boy and then Stephanie came down to ta- to tell me that she was leaving and did I want to come. And I just was like a dog about to be hit with a rolled up newspaper because I thought even though she'd brought me here, I hadn't acknowledged it to myself and certainly not to anybody else before and I thought, oh, she's going to, is she going to tell me I'm disgusting? Am I still allowed to stay at her house? And she was like, oh, we're leaving. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, is that okay? And she was like, yeah, she was. And then she leaned in and was like, was that your first kiss? And I was like, yes. And she was like, congratulations. And I was like, oh my God, what? It was just that, that positive affirmation of, of my first recognition of my sexuality, I think made. A really important impact.
1: Wow. Does that specific instance, because it is so positive, increase the likelihood that you tell other people? I mean, I'm the reason I'm saying it, I'm projecting a little bit. But if if she had turned to you and said, You're a disgusting faggot, you're not coming to my house tonight. Yeah, the likelihood would have affected <laughs> <Yeah. her. laughs> the likelihood you are ever gonna go back again or but act yourself around her or definitely tell anyone else in your life is yeah. nil. From that moment until the time that you decide to enroll the people in your life, like your family, in that truth, how long is that?
0: I think that was maybe in July 2000. Maybe it was a year before I came out to mom and dad. And I think I came out to them because I felt like I was no longer able to To be authentic and honest with them Mm. because there was this huge part of myself that I had now discovered that when I was on the phone to them, and remember, this was the year 2000, calling someone like it was like dollars per minute on on your Nokia 80 210 or whatever it was. Like we didn't have FaceTime, we couldn't just chat on video. You were quite deliberate. I think we didn't, we had text messaging, but it was like numeric keypad. And so to, to talk to somebody on the phone, you wouldn't just chat on the phone for hours. You were like definite about why you were calling the person. But I always felt that when I was giving mum and dad life updates that I had to like omit this huge section and that because of my relationship with them, that wasn't something that made me feel good. And I really wanted to tell them. But obviously I also feared rejection that uh, the stories that I had heard from the queer people around me in Sydney at that time most of them didn't seem all that positive and if, if at best they were neutral mm. and my relationship with my parents was one of my greatest joys and so to have that threatened in that way was, yeah, it's kind of that risk of, of rejection was a really big thing. As it turns out, they were very accepting. I texted I am gay, <laughs> send. And then mum texted back, that's nice, dear, see you at dinner.
1: Oh, my and goodness.
0: They were in Sydney. We had dinner that night and we all chatted about it and my mum was like, oh, do you know Carlotta? And Carlotta is one of Australia's most, or is Australia's most famous transsexual and she, you know, I knew her from watching Beauty and the Beast. She was an icon in King's Cross in the 60s and 70s as a, a trans showgirl. Um she was the, interestingly, Carlotta, I don't know why I'm giving you a history lesson on Carlotta, but Carlotta was the first trans actor to ever play a trans role on scripted television back in 1976. Wow. She was on a TV show, 1973,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, on a TV show called Number 96. Anyway, my mum was a beauty therapist, um, which is an Australian term for esthetician, I'm getting a
1: lot of good history today.
0: (laughs) Americans find the
1: term beauty therapist so entertaining because it sounds like therapy, like you go to talk therapy. I mean, I'm going to be honest, if you hadn't given me the history, I would have gone, there are music therapists, there are counselors, and now there are beauty therapists where they teach you to love yourself with good foundation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Esthetician. And so she was like, oh, I used to wax Carlotta's legs back in the 70s. And I was like, oh. And then my dad was like, like, oh, you look pretty good dressed as a Sheila. And I was like, well, since you mention it, uh, I also do drag. Um, and that told them all about that. And then Dad was like, oh, I, I went to Sleazeball one year in drag. And I'm like, whoa, Dad, this is my coming out story. You're you you you're, you're both being over-supportive now.
1: Mm. <laughs> Wait a second. This is really... I. I've heard your story many times and I and I know that some people have and so I wanted to kind of figure out what elements might be unique for you to talk about cuz I'm sure you're saying them a lot. And one of the questions I had was and this is a complete I have no idea if this is true but do you imagine that it is more difficult for people to come out as gay or coming out as a as a drag queen? And the and I I know it's strange to consider but I I always wondered if you could hide drag queen under a performance, like as a as an actor, a role, and therefore it might be easier. But you did it at the same damn time, the same damn meal. Yeah, I think I look.
0: Maybe you could hide, uh, drag queen as being an actor, but I I I don't think anyone's buying that. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I think that one precedes the other. Not to say that you can't be straight and be a drag queen, but. You know, that's a whole different uh, battlefield for that straight man who loves drag mm. to to convince the world otherwise. Um,
1: also, we're talking but, about the 90s, right? Or early 2000s. This was the
0: early 2000s, Where it was
1: yeah. not so easy to do drag. It wasn't like everyone was doing it. There was beautiful videos, yeah. Instagram. You could just like yeah. try it one night. I mean, Barry Humphreys' as Dame Edna would be the closest thing to
0: a straight man who does drag that you know, society does accept and understand, but he does it under the guise of a character. He's an actor. Mm. Um, and that's the way um, I think I validated my own drag for a long time. I compartmentalized it and said that, oh, no, no, this is a job. I wear a uniform. But I think it would be, I think coming out as gay is much more about your identity. And then the drag thing, uh, I mean, if you've, if you've got the support of your parents and you're a queer kid, then coming out, as a drag queen, is probably much less tenuous.
1: Mm. The other thing that came to mind through that kind of coming out umbrella is uh, uh, I had a close community of friends in New York uh, that are professional drag queens. And when they said, I, I'm a drag performer, this is what I do for a job, you know, the response was, does that mean you want to be a woman? Right. Yeah. Is that an experience that you had in those early days where people were trying, or for yourself, Were people attempting to try to take that role, that performance, that part of you and decide, oh, it must mean that Shane is X? Yeah,
0: I think that, um, I mean, people still, uh, people in 2021 would still ask that question if they weren't aware of more, if they didn't have like more context for me. They'd be like, oh, so you want to be a woman? I'm like, no, no, no. But then back then the problem was I didn't have the, the wherewithal to really understand what gender meant. Mm. And I knew that I liked feminine things and I knew that wasn't okay. And I also saw gender as being not just a binary between male and female but between being cis and trans. Mm. Um, Cis, for those people listening, is people who are not trans are cis. Um, And so I never felt like I was a woman, but I also never felt like I was a man. Mm. And so that was like a real struggle for the longest time because I didn't feel like I felt into either category. Uh, But I thought, well, maybe I am trans. Like maybe, like I, I present very femininely when I'm in drag. I really enjoy the feminine side. I also enjoy the performance side. And so I'd question my gender, well, probably up until the age of 33 when someone was like it's okay for boys to be feminine and girls to be masculine and you know gender can be fluid and i was like how did it take me 33 years to hear that for the first time and for that to like sink in and make sense um but yeah i think that the one of the biggest struggles after i came out about my sexuality was understanding my gender identity and how that um fit into a
1: binary world or didn't Was being Courtney or getting to step into that part of you um, that is Courtney, was that the perfect testing ground for you to try to like see how people reacted? I don't think consciously
0: um, that was because there was no preceding thought. It was just um, trial and error, Mm. I think. Um, I just knew that I was drawn to it and then I tried doing it and I enjoyed it. Uh, but then it came to a point where I did have to compartmentalise it and describe it as a job because it was w- weirdly drag was justifiable in the world that I was in, but liking wearing women's clothes or presenting femininely or acting femininely or feeling femininely it was not acceptable. So it had to be put in a box mm. and... Um, as much as, like, I never succeeded at being a man <laughs> as a boy, I always tried to. I was consistently trying to be masculine. And then as Courtney I was much more naturally feminine. Um, and, yeah, I think weirdly, like, failing at masculinity was one of the greatest successes of my life mm. because it's allowed me to discover who I am outside of that ideal of what a man is or what masculinity is or what I should be.
1: So when you're 33 and it um, comes to your attention that you can potentially, that the binary might be broken and you have the potential to live between both, at that time uh, was the word non-binary specifically linked to that information or was it just an idea?
0: Um, I don't remember the term non-binary being about it was more gender fluid and gender queer Mm. were the two terms that I was familiar with. And I think because of that um, I remember feeling so liberated by the term gender fluid. I was just like, and yeah, you feel a bit, I feel a bit dumb now saying that I didn't get that sooner because like when I looked back on my entire life, I'm like, oh, that's literally what you've always been doing. That's literally who you always were, but you just lived in opposition to that because you didn't know if you can't. See it, you can't be it. Mm. You said it more eloquently. No, that was it. You nailed it. Okay. (laughs) Um, And um, I think that must have been around 2014 when the narrative in pop culture surrounding trans identity became a lot more evolved. Um, That was the year that Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time magazine Mm. uh, with the title The Transgender Tipping Point. Um, But also, I had seen Laverne and Janet Mock in interviews with. Katie Couric and Piers Morgan, respectively, schooling them on uh, the questions that they had asked. Um, with Katie Couric, she asked, you know, Laverne about her genitals and about surgery, and Laverne sort of paused and said, "You know what? I'm, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing," she said so often the conversation about trans people is reduced to their bodies and to physicality and to surgery and to genitals. And by asking those questions, you dehumanize me and you also missed out on hearing about my lived experience. Mm. And I guess it was the first time that I, that I had seen a trans person in a mainstream world take control of the narrative and tell the interviewer, no, I'm not going to just like smile and answer your questions because I'm grateful for the crumbs that you've given me to allow me into this space. I'm actually going to um, have worth in myself and, um, and let you know who that is. And I just remember those two interviews being so impactful where I suddenly saw that being trans was something – whilst I had grown up with trans women who I, who I love – I'd never seen uh, yeah, a trans woman be so dignified and be so, um, so powerful and be something that maybe I would like to be one day. Mm. Um, and it was only through having that um, visibility that then I was able to interrogate my gender identity. And I called my best friend Vanity to what I thought was come out as trans and when I spoke to her on the phone and got to the end of the conversation, I was like, oh, for most of my life I was worried, in air quotes, that I was trans and I was always too afraid to, I was experiencing too much internalised transphobia to ever actually um, go there, Mm. to ever even consider, I just thought it might be true and I was too afraid to even consider if it might be, so I never never examined it. And then one day when I felt finally confident enough, I called Vanity, had the conversation, got to the end, and I was like, oh, oh, wait, I don't think I am trans. Well, I'm not, I don't want to be a woman. I like being a girl, I like being feminine, but I don't actually want to be a woman. I also really enjoy being a boy, but I just didn't know that you could be both of those things or can I be both? Mm. Um, and that was that predated the gender fluid conversation, but I didn't have the um, the language yet. I just was like, "Oh, okay. Well, I know I'm not that, and I know I'm not that, and I know I'm this." But then it took a a little bit longer to actually have the language to describe it.
1: You're, you're articulating perfectly something I've struggled with, which is there is a large not large I don't know uh, there is a population within the queer community who really struggles with labels. It mm. frustrates them. Mm. I am married to someone who has spoken on this podcast about struggling with labels mm. and the concern that they have about being forced into a box mm. and how that can sit side by side, the beautiful juxtaposition, and it is beautiful, of the joy and the thrill of finding a label. Mm. That euphoria is really what you're talking about, that that finding a word that goes, oh, y- y- how I've been feeling all along that thing. Mm. Uh, it's not crazy. There are other people like me. Mm. Um, do you... Did you have a moment when you discovered terms that made you feel uh, elated and joyful? You use them a lot to introduce yourself. Mm. I find it helpful because it helps me know your truth. And mm. I'm wondering what those labels mean to you. Um, I mean, gender fluid definitely was one that that made me feel elated. But then interestingly,
0: then at a point, it started to confuse me because I was like, oh, wait, am I, am I what I'm supposed to be to fit this label? Oh. And... Am I, like, am I gender fluid enough because, like, I like wearing boys' clothes. I feel like maybe if I'm gender fluid that maybe I should look a bit more, like, uh, not man or not woman. Like, maybe I need to look more gender fluid in order to. And it, and it, you, you then get wrapped up in the other side of the conversation. But what I realized was is that labels are all... Like language is a construct, labels are a construct, and you can never find absolute authenticity with any one label because that label represents a category Mm. and we are all individuals. And so the labels will only take you to a point. They'll only get you maybe to like the street, like it's like a street sign. It's like, oh, this is the street that you live on. Now go and work out which one, which house is yours. And then like paint the house decorate it like do you want curtains do you want grass out the front like it, it's uh, that. it's then up to you once the label gets you to the the approximate location to then work out um who the rest of
1: you is I guess so as you were on that journey I'm guessing it wasn't a short period of time it actually sounds like it's your whole life yeah <laughs> um <laughs> how do you know if you should tell people or not? How do you know that you should sit your parents down and say, I think I might be something or I'm sitting with a new idea? Do you wait until you're sure? Uh, well, I guess with like the the liking boys thing,
0: that was pretty apparent. Um, I think that there was, in in both of the like my big coming outs, which would be sexuality and gender, both of them... Uh, there was no doubt or question in my mind because that label spoke to my whole lived experience up until that point Mm. um I don't think I ever like called mum and dad and was like you guys I'm gender fluid sorry that sounded like I was making fun of people who do do that because I know that is a, a real thing but it wasn't something I ever felt that I like ever said to them mm. in an intimate conversation i just started talking about it publicly because i was like oh yeah it's just it's it's obvious now like gender is fluid but like to suggest that gender isn't fluid is like empirically untrue mm. like we refer to gender as something that is fluid consistently over time. Like 1930s, women couldn't wear trousers. Like the metrosexual David Beckham. But there's all of these markers historically about how gender and how men and women's roles change. Laws change consistently. You know, women couldn't rent an apartment by themselves in the 1930s. Now, obviously, and thankfully, they can. They couldn't run for parliament. Like gender literally is fluid. There's like not actually any argument you can make to... Uh, say that gender is a fixed thing in our world. Um, And we know that because, yeah, of history and also of geography. It means different things in different parts of the world. Mm. Um, But gays everywhere do drink vodka. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's, yeah, so it's kind of like weird when you realise something and you're like, oh, this whole t- the whole time you all had me thinking I was the one with the problem and actually this whole time it's everyone else. <laughs> Maybe in 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 some psychological states that is not a good realization to have but I think in this one realizing that I actually wasn't the one with the problem it was the system that had been presented to me that was the problem and that was broken that's yeah, that's a really euphoric and liberating moment.
1: And does that take a lot of education to the people around you? I imagine this is a challenging conversation for people to have who haven't spent time in the queer community.
0: Maybe. I mean, if I sit, say, like, on Q&A on the ABC and um talk about... I mean, I the thing is, let's say with, like, gender being fluid, like I just described then, you can... Like I feel like most people could be like, oh, yeah, actually that makes sense. you're right. Like, like we have all of these things that most people understand. It's just that they've been taught that um, it's not fluid. And it's like, well, we we change our clothes, we cut our hair, we the food that we eat, the people that we love, all of like the jobs that we do, all of those things are constantly in flux and evolving. So like, how could our gender be fixed?
1: It's useful information, but I I imagine for most people, even the best, most well-intentioned humans on Earth, they have such a fixed understanding of what it means to be their gender in the very small time that they've been on Earth. Even if you're mm. passing down information from generation to generation, it's really hard. They're not teaching us this information in school, Shane. Like, I, I didn't learn. I had no idea that men wore heels first. I had no idea that pink was originally a boy's color. Like, I had to search out that information. I really had to comb through it. So if if I'm not watching Q&A and getting an opportunity to see you be this beautiful advocate and I'm having to go home to my parents and try to explain to them that it doesn't actually feel that weird for me to wear a dress and it shouldn't be that crazy to you mm. because X, Y, Z, then it's hard to break through. Yes, it can, yes. I imagine. Yeah, and I think that I
0: obviously have... Um... I mean, I think the privilege of, like, the era that we are currently living in, like I said, 2014 for me was a real, like, almost like a line in the sand in my brain when the world started to uh, acknowledge queer identity and trans people more and give their stories value. And look, maybe... Maybe that was a time in history when maybe women's stories started being heard more, when people of color stories started being heard more, uh, when the dominant narrative wasn't, you know, heterosexual and white and cis. Um, And I think we've just seen so much more diverse storytelling, uh, different experiences that now all of these things are starting to make more and more sense to more and more people because we're hearing more and more stories. but yeah, I mean, I think I could I could I think I could sit down with like a straight bloke and give him those historic examples of how our concept of gender is fluid, mm. but I wouldn't suggest that everyone's gender identity is fluid. Um, I'm sure that there are people who feel absolutely, Female and absolutely male, or absolutely man and absolutely woman. But then I would, I, I would argue that perhaps the majority of people actually experience um, feminine and masculine qualities in with much more nuance than um, we might have been brought up to believe.
1: Wow. Now I'm, I'm making a bunch of connections in the back of my head. I'm thinking about your run on Celebrity Big Brother UK, which I watched, and I watched you. Face challenging conversations with a very calm, empathetic approach, which was clearly very successful. Not when it comes to the success on the show. I just think the impact for the queer community. Um, And then I think about the stories you've said about your parents, them being accepting and loving. And I'm just like wondering where that comes from. Like, have you ever sat down with your parents and been like, I mean, you're from this part of the world and this time in human history, you were raised... In an environment that would have said to your father, "This is what a man is," therefore tr- mm. raise your son that way, and then randomly, not or maybe not so much, they've raised this beautiful person who is who is capable of not getting angry when people are like, <laughs> "I don't agree with you." <laughs> I think I think that sometimes we
0: underestimate the seventies. Um, Preach, okay? Yes, <laughs> I think that perhaps things. We think that the things that came before us have been as consistently conservative as they have been in recent times, but I think like the late 60s and the 70s maybe the language and the labels weren't as evolved. But like Dad, I just posted on Instagram like Dad wearing 28-inch bell bottoms and he was, we are having conversations about um, not the, not that that means anything. Um, but like into fashion. and he worked in Brisbane um, for some like uh, fashion boutique and he was working at it was like a conglomerate that owned a bunch of different stores and he was working for one, he was working in a store that was like more conservative men'swear fashion. And the manager was like, oh, you should be working at this store because that's more what you are. And it was it was the way Dad described the clothes, it was kind of like maybe what prints, you would think of princes wearing, like, ruffle shirts and, oh, they had names. I want to say bodgies. Uh, anyway, mm. it was a style of fashion and a, and a a lifestyle. And, like, Dad just loved, and I didn't know any of this. Like, he's, like, you know, a man in a business shirt with a big moustache and, and glasses, like, for all of my life. But before I was born, he had, like, long red shag cut hair and, pierced ears and like wore ruffle shirts and platform shoes and all of these things that I'm now just getting into. <laughs> um, and, yeah, mum was a, a barman at the Persian room in King's Cross, like on the King's Cross trip in the 70s, like mm. not now when it's been somewhat gentrified. And she um, used to um, serve drinks to all of the lay girls who would finish finish work And then come up the road and she knew all the drink orders and she would talk to them and they both just coincidentally or not coincidentally had had, um, experiences that allowed them to understand who their child was and accept that. And yeah, it's not like they were like, you know, devout Catholics and were like, oh, it's cool that you're a, a gay sex loving drag queen. Um. They both had already had lives, full lives led before I was born and
1: I just didn't know about them. I'm so glad you called me out on it. It's so good because you, the way I'm actually gonna go back to what you said originally, most of the conversations we hear about the coming out spirits are neutral at best. Mm. At best. Very rarely do we hear, well, my parents were cool. Yeah. And then I came out and they were like, what's for dinner? I think that's literally what yeah. your mom said. Oh, see you yeah. at dinner. See you at dinner. That's nice to hear, see you at dinner. Yeah. Because for so many of us, that seems like a fantasy. It honestly sounds like a fantasy to me. And yet there is a large chunk of the population over the course of the last 20 years that that is their normal. They're just not old enough or popular enough yet to talk on podcasts about it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: totally. Well, that's the thing is that most, and I mean, I think my story was still exceptional in that time, Mm. like in the year 2000. I know that there's a lot of younger people today who do have supportive and understanding parents, you know, in primary school and high school. Uh, And also it's important to acknowledge that things are still really shit for a lot of queer people, Um, you know, especially if you're not, you know, lucky enough to be born to parents who
1: happen to have an understanding Mm. of that. I always like to end the conversation by kind of thinking about the next generation of of chains Mm -hmm. Uh, or Courtney's or anyone's. shortneys. Shortneys, yes. Um, young person who's struggling with their gender or sexuality, you talk a little bit about resources. If you could speak to them now, what would you suggest they do? Where should they go? Um, well, if you're listening to this
0: podcast, you've, you're ahead of the game, mm. I think. Like you're discussing, you're having these conversations with people uh already I think um I do think podcasts actually are a great place to look there are lots of places it depends on I guess who you are how your sexuality or gender manifests um obviously like if you're a cis gay white man you might look one place if you're a a brown trans woman you might look somewhere else but there's plenty of stuff in pop culture and it doesn't have to necessarily reflect your immediate experience for you to enjoy it or to understand it and one of my favorite shows on tv is pose i love uh i love the the history and the stories uh, that pose has told um if people don't know what pose is it's uh, a ryan murphy series um don't let that fool you about um black and brown trans and queer people living in new york city in like the 80s and 90s, and it's uh, written and um, produced predominantly by people of that lived experience. You know, there are uh, trans people in the writers' room, on the set, behind the scenes, in camera, uh, in front of camera. It's like the the largest. Well, it, it's almost exclusively trans women and 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 queer men in the show. And so there's such an authenticity in the storytelling because it's the people who have the lived experience telling the story. Um, Other, like, big queer culture things. I mean, if you haven't looked at RuPaul's Drag Race, there's a lot of fun to be had there. Is there a certain season people should watch? (laughs) I mean, people say (laughs) season six is the best. I mean, I'm not going to disagree. Books that I love, I mean... What have I read just recently? I mean, Kate Bornstein's Gender Outlaw is a book that I love if you're interested in knowing more about gender. Uh, Dustin Lance Black, his book Mama's Boy was really beautiful. Or something a little bit more educational, not that those aren't. There's a book called Queer, a graphic history, um, which is almost like a picture book that takes you through some of the big players in the queer movement from, you know, a pre-Stonewall time until today. that talks about queer theory and um, it's really interesting. Um, also, The Transgender Issue by Sean Fay um, is a great, very new book that really discusses the the nuances of, of trans identity, specifically in the UK. Um, but that's a really great book that's um, that's just come out. And, of course, my book, Caught in the Act, a memoir, brilliant um, available at all cool bookshops and even some shit ones
1: <laughs> for people who are young um who are struggling do you have anything to say to them i know for a lot of people who come to this show they have messaged and said i'm my parents aren't my safe space or my family is not accepting i'm looking for that community and so maybe they find it here maybe they find it on social media but for someone who did have accepting parents, I'm wondering what your thought process is for young people who don't feel like they have fa- they have a family that supports them.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, there are some really amazing support services um, out there. And obviously it depends on where you live. Um, in Australia, in New South Wales, there's ACON. Um, there's organizations like Black Rainbow who um, are focused on the, the thriving of um, First Nations queer people there uh in victoria actually there's just a brand new um victorian pride center that's opened up and like i don't know maybe the idea of like calling a helpline or something seems like something that you wouldn't do but i don't think it should be underestimated um if you're struggling especially but even just for a sense of community. There's some, and if you're under the age of eighteen, there's also like often a struggle in finding things to do that don't involve alcohol. Mm. Um, and there's certainly some really amazing um, organizations doing doing work that is community and and social. And um, and I don't think any of those should be underestimated. But um and then I think like specifically, what I would say, what I would say to people listening who are struggling is that if you have ever been made to feel that like who you are is wrong or doesn't fit, just know that that's not true, Um, that, that that's just a product of this world that we live in. And I don't quite know how or why we got here. I don't know why it all ended up this way, but I am consistently and constantly understanding that this world isn't really doesn't really make sense. So if you've been made to feel like you don't make sense, just know that it's not you. Mm. It's probably um a product of, you know, a combination of things uh of the world that we live in. Um this this imposition that everything is straight and cis and white and so on. So Know that, like, if you're if you're a bit confused about your identity and you're in your teens or in your twenties, that's probably like exactly where you're supposed to be. I think most people are confused about their identity in their teens and their twenties, and they think that they shouldn't be, but no one really talks about it, so everyone suffers in silence. But when you look back, you're like, oh my god, I was sm- I was so confused and I was like tortured, and in some weird way, that's that's what I was supposed to be doing at 24. Mm. I think that's a part of life is like testing the boundaries and understanding who you are through the experience of like doing different things and working out what feels good. And I think as long as you're doing stuff that makes you feel good at the end of the day, like, like the real you, like the you inside, not the noises in your head or the the voices that tell you that you should be a certain way, but like the real deep down feeling inside, like that's the, that's the, listen to that as much as you can and as often as you can, because that's always going to guide you better than the voices in your head that tell you that you're not good enough.
1: Mm. You've spent some time talking to young people as a part of your job. I'm obviously a parent with two young people and it has blown my mind the, the how a humongous chunk of young people are questioning everything, their gender, their sexuality, the structures, the binary rules, labels, and it when I see it happening at the playground, when I see it happening in school, I just think if you and I talk in 20 years, what is the landscape gonna look like? I'm thinking it's gonna be beautiful. Yeah, I
0: think so too. Either that or global warming will have killed us all, but like, you know, (laughs) separate conversation, (laughs) separate podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. My pleasure, thank you, it was really lovely.
1: How are you guys? How are you feeling? I know that this episode could have brought up some interesting feelings for some of you, and if it did, there are some resources that I think you should check out. So Minus18 is the first one. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have a bunch of great resources online. They hold wonderful events, and they also offer trainings for classroom and workplaces around sexuality, gender, and creating a safe space for LGBTQIA plus people. They're also all over social you can follow them at minus one eight youth and you spell out one eight and their website is minus one eight dot org dot au but they are not a helpline so if you're looking for support in that way you can call q life they're at one eight hundred one eight four five two seven. 184 527 they offer a free phone service every day from 3 p.m to midnight um, so if you want to talk to someone about your gender your sexuality your identity relationships any feelings that's a perfect place but if you're feeling really anxious and you're not up to talking on the phone, that's fine. They do have a web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. So their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can follow us on Instagram at that's C-O-W-Y-A Podcast. That's C O W Y A podcast. You can also follow me. Uh, my handle is at Sean Zepps. That's S E A N S Z E. P.S. come out wherever you are is a community and i want as many people within this community the lgbtqia plus people allies friends curious folks i want everyone to have access to this powerful network of people And the best way for that to happen is for you to share so if you like this you can share a link in your group chat text message put it on your instagram story a little swipe up link do whatever you want to help get the message out there Out Wherever You Are is presented by me and me alone. No one helped me in the creation of the show. I'm kidding. <laughs> my name is Sean Zepps, but there are three wonderful people that we need to shout out. Um, my producer, my number one, Lindsay Green, our executive producer, Jennifer Goggin, and our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. Listener.